Hello again and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now, as I'm down under at the moment, I thought we'd have a little chat to an Aussie today. So my guest today is Hamish Sewell, who's from Queensland and he's got a background in radio and oral history and is also the creator of Sound Trails, an audio project which uses geolocative technology to bring to life the towns and stories of ordinary people in Australia. Now, before we get into today's episode, I will give you the rundown of some of the things we chat about. So firstly, we get into more detail about what Sound Trails is and why Hamish decided to create it. How this project has really brought out and shown the best of small town communities in Australia. What the appeal is behind ordinary stories and the creative potential of using geolocative storytelling. Finally, we look at what drew Hamish to his work with radio, oral history and sound trails and why he wanted to express this connection between people and their place. And we also chat about a lot more, but this is just obviously the summary of the key points. Anyway, we'll crack on with today's episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. Storyland is the website home to all of your projects and work, which I will get more into in a bit, but I wanted to start with Sound Trails. So your Sound Trails project is an app and website dedicated to immersing people in the history of an area through audio. So would you be able to tell the listeners more about how this works and what led you to creating Sound Trails in the first place? Sure. So... I have a background in radio and oral history and storytelling, really. And we were working in this small town and regional New South Wales called Urala. And we were doing this beautiful audio recording project with the community, which was to be not only locally archived, but also put up as a an online digital piece that reflected uh, a number of relationships that people had within that community, whether it was fathers and daughters, whether it was best friends, whether it was old workmates. And they together created this suite of audio stories, audio conversations that really afforded a really interesting profile of the town. And we had such a great time doing it and we got such a, a rich range of stories from everything from uh, shearers who lamented the day daylight savings came in because they would get sunburnt as they drove to work and and talking about pub fights and the the old bush dances through to people who are involved in the bush regeneration through to the the old traditional phoenix foundry which was in town Uh, and some of it was historical and a lot of it also too really spoke to the contemporary community in terms of the arts, the, 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 the land management. And we felt like we had this beautiful DNA, but we felt disappointed about being just relegated to online because the listening experience when you're online is a very sort of static and passive one. You really are sitting at that screen or you're, 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 kind of umbilically tied to that com- computer and we wanted to explore the idea of maybe people being able to listen on the streets and we didn't really understand what that meant I think at that stage but around that time and this was six years ago I was lucky to be invited to a workshop at ABC Radio National in Sydney 
which was called Radio After Radio. And I think they were foreseeing the fact that radio in some ways is is a little bit of an anachronism and that that online streaming, uh, you know, there's a raft of kind of other ways now that the more traditional broadcast media, you know, that, that area that they might have um, captured, it, it's sort of bifurcating and it's going all over the place now. And this workshop was around GPS storytelling and it was with this woman called Francesca Panetta. And Francesca Panetta has a background as a radio producer working with the BBC, doing radio features. And she was, I think she was behind this project called Hackney Hair. And Hackney Hair was ostensibly one of the first geolocative projects in in the world, I suppose. I think there were a few before. I don't think she was completely new. There were certainly quite a few experimental more sort of groundbreaking projects than hers. But I think hers really took that idea of layering the the art of storytelling or the art of audio and, and, and immersive audio across locations. I think it took it to a new limit. I believe she had something like 300 stories across Hackney that you could walk in and out of. But this was back six years ago with iPhone 3s, uh, the mobile coverage wasn't nearly as, as sophisticated back then. And I believe it was, you know, in terms of the functionality, in terms of the the, the architecture of the whole thing, I, I believe it was a bit clunky in terms of when stories would pick up and when they wouldn't pick up. But I remember we there was a bunch of um, radio producers from Radio National and we all kind of jumped into the recording studio with Francesca and we cooked up these audio pieces. And I remember walking down to Sydney's Haymarket with my iPhone 3, with my headphones on, and suddenly realising what was on offer with geolocative storytelling. And it really nearly knocked my socks off, to be frank, because you've got a very, very immersive and personalized interior space that's sort of coming to life around you at the same time as you're walking into the site itself and there's this really interesting sort of coalescing between that virtual story world or that audio world that's going in through your ears and through your brain and that physical tactile world you know whether it's the the wind or whether it's the buildings you're looking at and and I I think I kind of realised at that point that this was an area where I could kind of start getting into. Yeah, absolutely. So with the app, when you actually are walking with it, does it it just automatically will play, or do you have to press play? How, how does that? Yeah, work? yeah, yeah. So forgive me, I'm just going to be a bit long winded about this. Um, so we decided to have a crack at building sound trails. <clears throat> on the basis of what I'd learned from this workshop and also on the basis of what I could see of this other app called App Furnace at the time. But we decided that we were going to build our own app and partly that was because we couldn't afford App Furnace, which was a Bristol-based uh, app. And also partly that was because we felt they were placing a lot of restrictions on us. They were saying that they would allow us to build um, a number of projects and after that, that was the limit 
Whereas we wanted the ability to build an app that could house untold locations if we wanted to, whether it was Urella or whether it was, you know, three dozen more locations. So we deliberately kind of built our own, our own app. And the thing that was really important to us when we built it was that we were able to create a layered and immersive storytelling experience and that the audio was really an important part of the whole shebang. And I think one of the mistakes personally that a lot of people make when they go and try to do geolocative stuff is they become very sort of smitten by the technology and they lose track of the sense that this is effectively uh, an audio immersive experience and audio brings all sorts of enablers into the on-site storage experience. So we built when we built SoundTrails, we built it so that it was able to house multiple locations. And we also built it so that when you walk into a GPS-located story on a custom-built map, that story will automatically just lift up with a photograph or a, a range of photographs and some text. If you stay the duration of that story, then it will finish and quite likely you'll then start getting background, what we call background sound. Or if you walk out of that story before it's finished, then you'll just walk into the background sound automatically. So you're really talking about layers of audio playing in a choreographed manner to facilitate a very sort of immersive experience, whether that's narration, whether that's archival sound, whether that's uh, uh, excerpts from oral histories which are pieced together. And, and I think that's sort of essentially kind of what we were looking at. And, and, and as I had a radio background, as I'd come from working with Radio National and I also had a background in oral history and, 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 and writing, storytelling, I felt very, very committed to creating this embodied audio storytelling experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And I obviously I haven't been able to listen to them on location, but I did listen to some of them on on the website. And yeah, I can imagine when you're there that it's incredibly immersive because you've got, you know, you even went as far as to have music from like local bands and like you say, maybe archive sounds people's very personal stories and um also going back to what you were saying about those kind of geolocative apps a lot of them do very much focus on you you look and you read something or you watch a video whereas this is much more you just look at what's around you literally like in front of you while you're listening so no I really like that idea and where like where did you find these people was it did you just take people from the project you'd worked on before or did you just start from scratch again and go around and say, we want people? Have you got a story? Yeah, look, that's that's fairly easy and that we are generally commissioned by a community, uh, often a council, but it could be something like, um, you know, for instance, we're, we're very sort of tied in with an Aboriginal liaison education officer with the Catholic schools. Uh, we've worked with things like the Friends of the Mile Creek, uh, which is a very famous uh, massacre site in Australia. 
Um, I'm working at the moment with a bunch of artists and sculptors in a small town in New South Wales, fashioning together an audio trail that really brings to life that sculpture trail around the town. Some of them have uh, a heritage kind of focus. Some of them are a bit more contemporary. I don't think that sound trails needs to necessarily just be zeroed in on, 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 on heritage and history. I think there's a range of kind of other ways that it could fashion itself. But I think to date, that's probably been the lion's share of our commissions. The communities are really, really keen on getting involved in this. It's lovely. It's, it's really beautiful. I mean, in so many ways, I think the model that Sound Trails has embarked on is a very successful model in that a community will commission us to come in and we obviously bring the technology, we bring the know-how, we bring the production, but it's the community really that are the keepers of those stories and they're the ones who have those relationships to the place. And they're profound relationships. They're relationships that are built on you know, knowledge, history, community, understanding, love, tolerance, you know, frustration, different people, different personalities, different connections with certain places, different businesses. I mean, there's so many different ways in which a community will sort of interface with the myriad of stories that, that sort of underpin any one town. And, and in the case of Sound Trails, we primarily worked with regional towns in Australia. And I think you could say that the types of relationships I think that those communities have with their regional towns are, I think, quite unique. Uh, I think they're unique because they're Australian. I also think they're unique because they're often in very isolated regional communities. And so by dint of, of, of where they are and, and what it means to, to live in a place like this, I think their interest in fostering these types of stories and engaging people with these types of stories is really intrinsic, you know. These guys have, mm. there's a real, I mean, you might get a whiff of it in somewhere like Falconbridge, but I think once you kind of go past the Great Divide and you go west, then people who are in those towns, um, obviously, you know, there's quite a few exiles who probably don't know where else they should be, but there's also a lot of people who really have, you know, they've, they've thrown their hat in behind those communities. They've made them their life. They're really, they're, they're, not, they're going to live, they're going to die in those communities. And I think those communities mean everything to them. So for them to be involved in a project like Sound Trails that enables outsiders, whether they're in Germany and they're listening to Sound Trails online or whether they're actually grey nomads or whether they're a, a busload of school kids who have come in to, to, to download the app and sort of walk around the town. I think for locals, my sense is, uh, and we haven't done any kind of, you know, uh, primary research on this, but I think my sense is that for locals, it's a very empowering process. It's a very liberating process and it's a very dignifying moment for them to think that their stories are worth something. Yeah, I think there's something really special about that. I think I've always been a lot more drawn to the ordinary person, the regular, well, 
some people would say mundane, but I, I think you can get so much out of that and it can be incredibly interesting rather than just big events in our lives, in history that we hear about all the time. Would you say that you kind of are more drawn to that, drawn to normal people, normal stories, and you find that a lot more special to explore? Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I, I do think that that is the case and and often in regional towns, there's a real sense of humility and modesty. And it's a, it's a very appealing thing, I have to say, to work with people who don't necessarily have an overblown sense of their own worth or that what they've got is, is has an incredible currency. Often metropolitan places, you know, whether they're those kind of key urban places, you know, in Melbourne or Sydney, whether it's King's Cross or, or whether it's Fitzroy, you know, there's this sense of ethos and, and, and myth-making that's been well trodden in, in those sorts of communities. And they're a kind of go-to people. But I think one of the cool things about working with sound trails is that you come across these just remarkable people and these remarkable stories that would probably otherwise never really get a, get a, get any sort of recognition. And I'm thinking here of this tiny little tin pot town called Warrialda, which is I think a town of about it's probably about 1,100 people, and it's it's in the uh, the wheat belt in northwest New South Wales. And the council was duty bound to to do a sound trail in, in Warrialda because they knew that if they did one in their own town, that Warrialda would moan and groan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they did one in Warrialda first, and I ended up kind of getting palmed off on the historical society in Warrialda, which was which was really sweet but very funny. Because, you know, these guys were sort of struggling with cassette decks, let alone this idea of, of, of locative media. And <laughs> yeah. I, got told, I got told that I had to interview this guy called Charlie Woollett. And Charlie Woollett um, is, uh, I think he's still alive, actually. He's probably in his late 80s. And everyone said, you've got to interview Charlie Woollett. And I said, why? And they said, well, he's just a character. And I said, well, big deal you know there's lots of characters all over the place and they said yeah but he flew under the graves in railway bridge and I said what's that and they said it's it's a railway bridge which is 10 kilometers out of town and as a sort of a cowboy kind of a youngster when he got his pilot's license he he basically dive bombed these fishermen who were on the river oh my god he went right under the railway bridge which is legendary anyway Everyone, everyone was saying this this incident to me. So I, I went and spoke to Charlie, and Charlie's kind of missing teeth and he's missing fingers, and he's still, you know, working as a diesel mechanic, kind of in the hot sun, you know, in his eighties, and he probably didn't have, you know, a hell of a life outside of actually his work. So it probably kept him going. But I asked him if you flew under the graves in Railway Bridge, and I'd I'd been down there and I'd looked at it, and I kind of thought, like, how the hell did he fly under there? And he and he looked at me, he kind of gave me this kind of quizzical look and then he told me the story about you know sizing it up and and you know kind of working out how he was going to do it and the wingspan and the the strength of the motor and all this kind of stuff and so I thought okay fine you know I'll use that as one of the stories and in in sound trails and we'll just place it you know on um on the bridge in Warrialda and and we'll just sort of say that you know this bridge represents the bridge which is just out of town where Charlie flew under the bridge anyway the next morning i get this really kind of 
you know, worried phone call from Charlie and he says he's got to come and see me. And he, he turns up and he looks like he hasn't slept all night. And he comes in, he sits down at the table and I've got my recording gear on the table and I, and I was kind of aware that, gee, something's about to happen here. And he said, I never did it. He said, uh, <laughs> he said, I've traded on this story for 50 years and, and you've called my bluff. And I'm really worried that if this gets out there publicly, that other people are going to try to copy this and they'll kill themselves. He said, I did go to do it and, and, I, and I actually did dive bomb the fishermen, but I never went under the bridge. And, and, and he said what happened was they all ran because they, were thought, they thought that um, they were going to get, uh, you know, there was going to be a, a plane blow up. So they all ran. The fishermen ran from the river where he was dive bombing it and they had their backs to him and he actually went over the bridge instead of under it. But he went down to the pub that afternoon <laughs> And they said, Charlie Willett, you crazy bastard, you flew under the railway bridge, didn't you? And he just went, yeah. And that story stuck for 50 years. Oh, my God. So he's, he's like a living legend in it yeah, real life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it's a kind of great, for me, it's a beautiful symbol of the, both the importance of, 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 of those stories in terms of giving that community something that's, that's key to their identity, that's key to their lifeblood, that sort of reflects their relationships that they have with each other and with places. But they needn't necessarily kind of always be true, you know, but, but they're important nonetheless. But what did you do after that? Did you let him carry on his legacy or did you just not put that story out there? No, no, no. Well, here's the kind of the, the interesting part was I said to him, Charlie, you've been so honest with me. Thank you so much. But really, if you want people to not fly under this railway bridge, how would you feel if I turned this recording device on and I asked you to just repeat what you just said to me? And he looked at me and he sort of looked at the recording gear and he said, okay. So I turned it on and I said, Charlie, yesterday you you know you you you'd talked to me about how you'd flown under the Gravesend railway bridge but today you've come with another story and then he just went into it and he and he divulged everything and i i mean it was a real sense of honesty of bravery of of courage i think from a man in his 80s yeah, yeah. to actually just been you know carrying on a lie wow so I, I produced I produced a radio documentary from out of oh, there. Yeah, I, I was actually going to get on to asking you kind of about, you know, obviously you've done this, but you've delved into podcasting, radio, other projects. So could you tell us a bit about some of the things you've done there? Or? Yeah, yeah. If we're talking about place, I think there's, there's so many ways you can tell stories on place, isn't there? There's so many ways that you mm. can draw on stories to deepen people's sense of place to give people a sense of belonging around place to to draw out the beauty of place to 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 create more dimension and more depth to place and i think geolocative storytelling is an extremely extremely powerful tool that's definitely got a place in the future but i also think that something like a podcast has a role here and 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 I'm thinking of this hilarious little podcast that I did called the Nambour Variety Show and it was this for me attempt for me to learn how to to produce podcasts and so I took all my radio storytelling skills and I worked with a bunch of volunteers we all did it for next to nothing we all did it for free and over two years I think we produced five episodes so you know we're not we're not very productive (laughs) but um you know, we had a lot of fun and we 
we interviewed a lot of people on the streets and I don't know if you know anything about Nambour or Queensland, but... No, I don't really. A lot of regional towns are really lost for where they fit into the scheme of things. Uh, you know, there's high unemployment, shop fronts, uh, you know, there's lots of vacant shop fronts. And there's this sort of regular rally cry from the community that we've got to do something to sort of get Nambour back up on its, you know, on its, on, off its knees and on its feet again. And, and, and so we sort of just explored that, that sort of perennial um, quest in a small town to try to, to revive town. And we, we sort of played on that and we played on Nambour and its underdog status. And we drew off um, some of the material that we'd recorded from the sound trail and in turn some of the material we used from the podcast we were able to lay back into the Nambour sound trail. So there was a quite an interesting sort of intersection between the podcast and the geolocative piece, but they, I guess they operate in such different foundational sort of ways in that, yeah. in that I think that the Nambour sound trail will, the stories that we produce for the Nambour sound trail, there's no reason why they couldn't be up online on a geolocative app in 40 years time and still have a lot of currency whereas i do think that the podcast is it's it's a bit of a time and a place i think you've kind of got to go out there you've got to develop an audience if you're not prepared to do more than five episodes then you know you can run out of steam quite quickly uh and it's 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 of the moment a bit more yeah no i agree with you i think that the geolocative stuff, that's I feel like that's really gonna take off. I mean, it kind of is to a degree. I think there's so much more scope for it to go even further. I mean, now like you were saying, internet connections getting better, that kind of thing. And you know, I, I did interview somebody else who's kind of it's slightly different. He did audio trials for like national parks. So it veers more into that heritage side of I think there's so many different areas that you could take that and use it and yeah i think i mean coming back to what you were saying with this guy working with national parks i think i don't think many people have worked out the rich narrative potential of of a place-based experience yet with geolocative stuff so i think that the low-hanging fruit will be for people simply to kind of go welcome to you know the uh, the um, Browns Mountain uh, Trail. Uh, you're standing at such and such a place in 1838. You know this was first discovered by so and so. Now we're going to head off down the road, and we're going to you know we're going to see a statue, or we're going to see some remarkable trees. And I think it'll be a lot of relaying information that's assuming that people just are like these kind of porous vessels that can just take this information. And I think some people are into that. You know, some people do want to turn up at these national parks and they want a sense of, uh, a deeper sense of understanding of where they are. And I think there's a valid place for that. But I do think that they're often missing the opportunities that are there through a better understanding of the role that audio can play in bringing that place to life. And there's so many different types of approaches now which are sort of starting to to really get up and get going. So, for instance, you know, I think there's a really remarkable piece by a guy called Chris Brooks in Canada who um, has done this app called Consent. 
And <clears throat> Chris Brooks is a he's a real veteran radio producer. You know, he's among sort of some of the world's best. And he's taken a very famous rape case in this town called St. John's. And he's got actors to read excerpts from the court transcripts from the policeman who was accused of rape and the woman who uh, has accused, uh, who, who, who was, you know, um, allegedly raped. I, I use that word allegedly sort of fairly kind of cautiously. Anyway, it turned into a very controversial case and the policeman was acquitted of, the, 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 you know, of rape. But what it sort of pointed to was this incredible divergence in terms of the notion of what consent meant when it came to rape or, 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 or consent. And Chris Brooks took this situation and he created a place-based audio app called Consent, which pretty much unpacks from her point of view and from his point of view the story which for a while kind of goes along where they're both telling the same story. She gets into the police car, he drives her to her, to her place and then the story diverges where, where, where sort of they both have quite different accounts. Now, to do something like that using a place-based facility I think is a very interesting way of, of exploring sort of the geolocative narrative tools, which is a very different proposition, say, than your national park geolocative kind of tour uh, but I think one of the things that Chris knows fully well is that if you want to get people engaged and interested and create a compelling experience on site you need to bring all those storytelling tools that you've got as a radio producer and he does it to great effect. Mm. Yeah no that's He's definitely gone out there and done something very different. I mean, yeah, that's probably a bit of a first, isn't there, what he did? I think so. I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So Joanna, who connected us, she said to me that you've been doing some work in the UK recently. Would you be able to tell us what you've been up to over there? Or Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess I kind of, you know, I'd been working in sound trails for five years and, and it's a very small little gene pool at the moment. There's probably not many people in Australia who are embarking on or interested in place-based stuff to the degree that, that I feel like I am, particularly with that eye for uh, the audio, the art of audio storytelling. So I felt like I needed to kind of get out of Australia and, and, and explore what some people were doing. And ultimately, I would have loved to have had a much bigger budget and to have gone to Germany and Canada and uh, there's some really interesting stuff happening in Sweden, but I really didn't have that sort of budget. So I decided to kind of earmark London and then the south of the UK and and scoot around there very quickly and try to talk to as many people as I could and experience as many apps as I could. And 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 I guess what I was able to do is is really get a much broader picture of where the work that I've been doing and where Soundtrail sort of fits into the scheme of things on a bit more of a sort of a world stage. And the other thing that I was able to do was was I was able to um, meet some really interesting, motivated, very inspired people who are working in this field. Yeah. Do you think in the UK it is taking off a lot more than, than over in Australia then? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I think the UK has got much more of an illustrious tradition of innovative geolocative work through things like um, Blast Furnace, 
There's um, App Furnace, which is based in Bristol. There's Pervasive Media, which is also based in Bristol. Antenna, which mainly works with galleries, libraries, and museums. Is, is, there's a big uh, centre in London. I think it's been going on for a good 10 years in the UK at a fairly robust sort of level. But what I, what I was surprised by was the complete dearth of, or, of, of projects that are working at a commercial level. I was really quite surprised by that. So it seems to me that what's often happening is that these projects are getting off as one-off arts-funded uh, innovative sort of placemaking projects in collaboration with universities. They're, 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 they're sort of trialling new ways of doing things, whether it's using the phone's capacity to, to, to draw on pervasive information like, you know, weather forecasting or times of day and relay that back in some ways into the process, whether it's through things like transmedia or whether it's through something like the Cartographer's Confession in London, I think is a, is a stunning piece of work. And that really, to me, sort of points the direction, points in the direction of the way in which novellas or, or could be adapted into place-based kind of listening experiences in tandem with location. So I think there's a lot of really interesting, groundbreaking stuff going on. And there's people like Duncan Speakman, who's, you know, he's without a doubt, you know, he's a kind of a world leader in this area. But the thing that struck me was that Soundtrails is, has been operating now for six years. We've outlived a lot of these other projects now and we're underpinned by some sort of commercial model. I mean, we're not, you know, raking it in by any stretch of the imagination, but nonetheless, we are commissioned on a commercial basis. We go and we produce something and we're paid and that makes a hell of a difference for this ongoing continuity of, of, of what we've got as opposed to working on a one-off arts funding grant round. Do you think like ever in the future there'd be a possibility of say something like Sound Trails being a universal app where you could have this one app, you go anywhere across the world and towns that have had their stories recorded you could listen to or do you think it's always going to be very specific? You'd have to have different apps for different countries because... I mean, if you could have that fluidity, I guess, of them all being on one app, that would be amazing. <laughs> or is it quite, would that not be possible? And is it quite a long way off? I don't know. It's an interesting question. Um, I mean, there's a whole range of factors that play into a question like that. And one of them is the cost of maintaining an app. And it's, you know, it's not cheap. And and, and, and there's maintaining an app and then there's actually doing R&D on a map. And R&D is, again, you know, super expensive. Um, I mean, a developer can charge, you know, $1,000 a day to tinker around and turn blue, you know, the blue box to a green box. You know, an app developer can charge you a lot of money mm. to do that. So I think that's a real consideration. Um, the other thing is, is I think that um, people want their own branding, you know, if it's the Sunshine Coast Council or whether it's the London yeah. City Council or whether it's the National Parks or Heritage, they'll probably want, to a certain extent, their own branding. What I do sense, though, is that very few of them understand or have, have the resources available to really fashion out stories that are not only beautifully produced as audio experiences but layer in the voices, the people, the memory holders, 
those with the really tangible and authentic connections through to place. And that's where I think Sound Trails has got a real point of difference because right from the start, we always wanted to work with community and we wanted as best as we could to ensure that we not only used material that was pertinent to place, but that community felt that they were part of that process in a way. And so the upshot of producing a sound trail is not only having something that really allows people to sort of delve into the stories, the sounds, the songs, the the voices that that draw that place to life, but it's 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 really I guess it's really bringing those people with you. And and you know for for example something like the Gunny Wiggle Sound Trail which is just out of Inverell. I'm very proud of the Gunny Wiggle Sound Trail because we worked alongside about probably about 20 of the local Aboriginal community in producing this. And the reason why that sound trail was initiated was because I think the council had the smarts to recognise that if they did something like this, they would not only get a tourist product that cultural tourists could kind of come to the site and they could walk around it and they could have something to do which was digitally smart, forward-thinking, innovative, et cetera, et cetera. But by working with the community, they automatically sewed in the goodwill the generosity of those people and their and that community into the mix, which was an incredibly, I think, forward-thinking act in a community where there's a lot of bad blood between the white and the black community. So I think it it was sort of it's a very, very sort of successful way of recognizing and gesturing to the the rightful place that people have on country. And, and the authenticity of their, their memories and their stories as being heard on location. No, absolutely. I wanted to ask as well for you, like what was it that drew you to this field of work? Have you had like a so- strong sense of place since you were young or was it something that developed when you were older? You know, you're interested in wanting to connect stories to places and those that are kind of embedded within it. I don't think it was necessarily something I was born with and I don't think it's necessarily something that, I mean, I think a lot of people come from an academic place. I don't think I was coming from an academic place. I think I'm probably going into academia because it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting place to take sound trails. But foundationally, I think I was connected to the people and the places and wanting to see these stories mobilized through a sense of love and a connection through to places in those communities and and what it means to people to feel that that their voices their stories are being dignified Uh, and, and, and when I say dignified that's not only because they're being heard but that's also because they're being shaped into beautiful immersive experiences Mm. so you know, there's there's so much there that I guess gets me up in the morning and makes me go to work. And, and I, you know, I get a lot from this. It's a very rich, deeply, deeply rich and rewarding thing. And particularly, I think, in a time of drought and climate change where regional communities are so very much, you know, at the whims of, of, of um, you know, a larger, a larger picture. And they're very fragile, these communities. You know, I... I actually wonder whether towns like Warriella or Bingara or um, Nanango, you know, I wonder whether these towns are even going to exist in 10 years at the moment at the rate that climate change is mm. happening. And, and I think that, you know, there's a really interesting sort of question, well, to what extent 
made something like these digital voices that are overlaid on the country, to what extent might these possibly be outliving these communities? I don't know. That's very true. These could end up as like the legacy of the place, really, and the people that were once there if, you know, they're no more. So it's pretty important. You know, like as well, when you interview these people, do you just go with it or do you sort of say to them, we want to take this angle, think of something that you could discuss with us or how does that side of it work? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting question. Uh, One of the things that you become pretty aware of when you're a radio producer is is people who are trying to control things because producing a story, you know, has many, you know, has sort of many masters when you're producing a story. And, and you know, obviously there's timing, there's the recording itself, the quality of the recording, uh, and then there's what's deemed a story. And, and I think... Often when we go into these communities, the first thing that the community will say, particularly if it's anyone to do with historic society or, you know, cultural heritage, is they say they want to do pioneer stories. And it's a bit like, oh, God, here we go again. And I guess there's nothing wrong with, with, with pioneering stories, but I think it's really what's unique around those pioneering stories and how that reflects uniquely on their community. So every town in Australia, you know, on the East Coast has got a butter-making factory. You know, every town on the East Coast of Australia, you know, has had the mail run and it's had the picture theatre and and they're all valid and, and important. But I think that there is this relationship at an early stage with the community in terms of trying to foster an understanding as to what might give this experience a longevity which is going to make it unique to that town. And I think some places really get that. So, you know, so what we often do is we find ourselves working alongside two or three key people who we feel are mobilisers, who are gate openers, and, and, and they're really well connected within the community. And then we invite people to come in and talk with us and we sometimes say look you know charlie can you talk to us about flying under the gravesend railway bridge or um you know we'd like to talk to you about x y and z but sometimes that story can kind of go in some really interesting places yeah and i think it's it is really interesting to see what you can sort of discover and and there is a real art i think in 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 the discovery that's that's sort of one one sort of fights oneself on yeah it's, it's wonderful it's a really wonderful experience beautiful I can imagine yeah. I have to say you do sound like you have like a dream job <laughs> <laughs> just sounds I'd, I'd love to do something like that it's yeah. like you said it's so rewarding and it's also just so fun chatting to people and finding out these stories that mean so much to them and that they're going to be shared with everybody and everyone else can enjoy them like it's it's really yeah. great isn't it yeah it is it, it is a dream job. It's, it's fairly hard work on the production floor. Oh, I imagine, because, yeah, yeah. You know, you've sort of got to knuckle down to, you know, producing the stories. But it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And I guess it's that beauty and that honesty and that integrity and that playfulness that can be fashioned in and around, you know, these tactile, living, breathing, physical places that we walk in and out of I guess it's it's that that really excites me about this and 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 what that future for that holds I I just um I think it's very exciting and I do think that there's every chance that Soundtrails is going to be overseas 
probably um, within the next year uh, because we're doing a rebuild at the moment. We're probably not going to launch that rebuild until later on 2020, but I do expect that we might start picking up some customers from overseas, particularly those producers who are located in areas where they want to do place-based uh, locative storytelling, but they're stuck. They're stuck for what platforms to use. And, and I think often they'll feel very limited by the opportunities that are presented by the, um, the apps that are available today. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, if you do take it overseas, I think it will do really, really well because it's got so much potential, really has. I did want to just end with a bit of a silly, unanswerable question, but I was going to say, do you think it's the place that makes a story or the stories that make a place? Ah, yes. It's lovely, isn't it? It's a lovely little wee maxim, that one. Yeah. I think that that's probably not the question. I think that this is around memory making and meaning making. And you can thank Joanna for that. Um, she really sort of alerted me to that. I think that, that it, this is probably more around memory making and meaning making in the way that people make sense of places. And I think stories come out of people trying to make sense of places. And, and obviously stories are, are human constructs. They're, they're, they're things which, you know, they're, you, you touch something and, and that's got a physical feel. You know, you, you, the wind blows on your skin. You know, that, that's a sense. Um, and I think that we're in the world of sensory experiences when we're, we're, we're in, the world of, in the world of locative experiences. And audio is a sense. Audio is, is, is something that comes in through the eardrums, it reverberates, whether that's music, whether that's voice. There's this lovely tonal quality to the locative experience. And, and I think that what we have today is the opportunity through smartphones, you know, curses that they are, to start creating something quite profoundly unique in terms of the way in which people can relate to unique locations and and not only i suppose you know put on their headphones and walk around and hear certain things but create something of of a meaning making exercise and um you know, there's this expression in academia called literacy of place. And I do think that that's really what we're talking about here. I think that there's, there's a sense of, of learning, there's a sense of, 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 of direct experience that actually is both intellectual and I think it actually it, it, it goes above just being an intellectual experience. I think when you hear the voices of people who have got such a deep and interwoven connection with the site that you're standing and it's a powerful story that's that's beautifully executed. I think that something goes on between the brain and the body. There's some sort of hardwiring that mobile phones through geolocative apps like SoundTrails are actually able to facilitate. And I think that's that's the question. I don't think it's the question of whether it's stories that make place or places that make stories. I think it's a meaning-making process. Yeah, no, I, I massively agree with that. And like you say, although mobile phones seem like a bit of a curse, they are very useful as well, aren't they? But they're opening up so much more yeah. to like connect that boundary there. So mm. just to finish off, you know, where could people find you online? You know, your website, social media, if you've got that, anything else along those lines? 
yeah, Hamish, uh, Hamish at um, storiedland.com or um, they can, you know, check out check out my website they can i think there's a contact there just using that email uh love people to contact me i'm really interested in what people are doing please don't feel afraid uh it's really nice just to be acknowledged i think that that people are that there's a broader awareness around these types of questions that you're asking on this podcast i think it's a really important thing that you're doing and 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 you're speaking to me of a broader a, a broader kind of psychic awareness of of what's opening up, particularly through I think locative media and 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 mobile media now. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, you know, good luck with it all, and thank thanks for chatting with me. Thank you. So there we have it. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Hamish. And if you want to find out more about sound trails and the other projects he's worked on head over to his website which is storiedland.com if you enjoyed today's episode rating and reviews are always appreciated on apple Podcasts or whatever other platform and if you want to find out anything more related to the podcast head over to senseofplacepod.com unless you're already there because that's where you're listening but other than that that's all from me and i'm sending you my best wishes during these rather strange times